Welcome to the American Meteorological Society's podcast series, Clear Skies Ahead, conversations about careers in meteorology and beyond. I'm Kelly Savoy, and I'm here with Rex Herbst Warner, and we'll be your hosts. We're excited to give you the opportunity to step into the shoes of an expert working in weather, water, and climate sciences. We're happy to introduce today's guest, Stephen Glazier, lead meteorologist at Weather Nation in Denver, Colorado. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks very much for joining us today. You're welcome, Rex. Hi, Kelly. Good to see you all. Stephen, could you tell us a little bit about what sparked your interest in meteorology and how it influenced your educational path? Sure. And I'm really curious if anybody else has the same story. I haven't run across someone still with the same story that I have. So what originally sparked my interest in weather was drag racing, literally a one quarter of a mile race strip in New Hampshire at a raceway called New England Dragway. And it's a bit of an odd story because you wouldn't think that a drag strip would do that. But the reason why is because my my father had taken our family car and then transformed it into a race car at six or seven years old. (laughs) I I thought it was the coolest thing. Yeah, especially because I was playing with these kind of toy cars at six or seven. So then every weekend we would go up to the racetrack and he got fairly into it to an extent where he bought a weather station that had various readings, temperature, dew point. He bought a a little barometer uh, and this calculator that would input all those variables like temperature and and pressure and so forth, and that it would help him calibrate his car, his race car, because these minor differences in the weather would affect his race car. So after doing it weekend after weekend, I got hooked on, on watching the weather for him. So I not only had to take the observations for the the temperature, the relative humidity, pressure, so forth, and know if it was rising or falling, but I also had to watch the sky cover, the wind direction, and uh, anything else that would affect this car outside of those other variables. So after doing that, summer after summer, I got I got hooked on it. And then my parents had let me know that a friend of theirs told, told them that you could uh, major in meteorology. So I said, wow, I didn't even know you could major in it. So then that's what followed after that. I decided to keep pursuing it after the childhood dream in that regard. So a family hobby became a scientific interest in the weather itself. It did. It did because it was interesting how much his particular car was influenced by the weather. And for instance, if it was a, a crisp autumn day with high pressure, uh, a, a cool temperature, a, a nice low dew point, uh, his car would just run clean, run fast and especially with a tailwind, some wind behind him. Whereas in the summer heat, humidity, mid-afternoon, mugginess, maybe recent rain, uh, the car would run a lot slower. So it was, it was kind of interesting. And by slower, faster, I mean only a tenth or two tenths of a second. But uh, it made a big difference in terms of the way he was competing regarding the, uh, the racing. Does it affect the tire pressure too? When, there, when it changes from like, you know, cold temperature to warm temperature or vice versa? It, yeah, it does. And he had to kind of uh, make sure that he had to let some pressure out, especially really hot days, uh, you know, let a little bit more out because then there's a lot of torque and a lot of pressure right off the start because you're going from zero to, he eventually would make it up to about 140 miles an hour in about nine or 10 seconds. So it was oh, wow. pretty quick. And, and that kind of torque, you know, needed to have a certain consistent tire pressure, which was constantly changing. 
So when you found out that um, you could major in meteorology, uh, did you research a bunch of schools? Did you have anyone in particular in mind? How did you end up, um, you know, where you decided to go? So not even having known that you could major in meteorology, I didn't really have much of a clue who offered it. The person that let my parents know you could major in it let us know about Linden State College up in Vermont. So I said, okay, so we toured there. And then I said, well, I grew up in Connecticut at the time. And I said, well, is there something in Connecticut? And Western Connecticut University, one of the other, they had a smaller program, not to the extent of Linden's. And then I just kind of did a, a search of popular schools and the University of Oklahoma, of course, came up. So those three, I was, I had sent, um, you know, a, a resume, an application, my my high school transcript over to do it to, to those universities and state colleges and so forth. So those are the only three that I had pegged coming out of high school. And so where did you end up going? So I went to Linden State. I went to, up to uh, Lindenville, Vermont, known as the Vermont Northeast Kingdom. And that was from 2004 to 2008. It was a great four years. It was pretty close to home. It was still about three, three and a half hours away from where I grew up in Connecticut. So it was just far enough away, but just close enough to come home perhaps once a month or every other weekend. And I know that school has a broadcast meteorology program. Was that what you were interested in, you know, going in or, or, or were you more open to just meteorology in general? Or did you pick that school because you knew it had a broadcast meteorology program? I did. I, I picked it because it had a good broadcast meteorology program. Both weather and broadcasting were both strong. And I was interested in broadcast meteorology because on the side during high school and even late middle school through high school, I would volunteer at a, a small cable company called uh, Cox Communications. It was a small public access channel in Enfield, Connecticut. And it was just volunteering once or twice a week on cooking shows. My dad had a show on there, or it might be a talk show of sorts. So I'd volunteer there and I got hooked in the, um, in the TV side of things. So that helped me decide what sector of meteorology to go into. That leads right into the next question I was going to ask you about what opportunities you pursued inside and outside of school, either high school or college, that you knew would be or might be beneficial to securing your first and your subsequent jobs in meteorology. So the public access TV station sounds like a very interesting way to understand what the, the television industry was like pretty early on, what other opportunities did you have or did you find out about that helped you feel a little bit more knowledgeable in the context around what you wanted to do coming out of college? In addition to the volunteering at Cox Communications for that public access channel, I also job shadowed Bruce DePriest. He was the chief meteorologist at WFSB in Connecticut. They're just outside of Hartford, Connecticut, technically, but it's the Hartford TV market. So that wasn't an internship and nothing paid or anything. I just emailed or called uh, the TV station and asked for Bruce and said, can I come by and just shadow you for a while, maybe uh, a day a week, uh, two days a week for maybe a month or so, just to see what you do. So that was insightful. And he was he opened up his door. He was great. That was fantastic. Volunteering at the public access channel did it. And then also, it's funny, I I still have the tapes, I think. They're in the drawer over there. I, I literally recorded some VHS tapes uh, of me spitting out these weather stats on a mountain <laughs> called Soapstone Mountain. It's in Northeast Connecticut. 
you know, not really a mountain from where I live now in Denver's standards. This thing is maybe 800 feet elevation at Soapstone Mountain. But <laughs> my dad said, you know, you got to stick out. You have to have a, a shtick, uh, something that makes you unique for weather. So I would, uh, I did some science things up there. And then I, for some reason, I thought that would help me to get into Linden State College. And I sent that, <clears throat> I think I'd sent that alongside my other uh, necessary documents to try to get into college. And, I, you know, I got in. I have no idea if that tape was ever seen, but I have copies of it still here at home. So once you graduated, um, what was your first job in the field? And then how did you end up at Weather Nation? That was a bit of a road course. My first job outside of college was at a small TV station, and it was a sub-market station of the Harrisonburg, Virginia market. So there was Harrisonburg, which is known for uh, James Madison University, JMU. It's in the Shenandoah Valley. It's like southwest of D.C. and northwest of Richmond. And there's a, there was a small TV station as a part of it of WHSV uh, in Winchester, Virginia, which is the northern uh, tip of Virginia. And that was my first job in July 2008 to 2010. I was there for two years. And the funny thing is, and for anybody that is thinking still about doing this career, you need a lot of patience. I was a reporter for four days a week, and then I ended up being a meteorologist just one show. It was a Sunday night, 11 p.m. broadcast, I believe it was, for one, two, three weather hits during the show. That's about it. And then the other 95% of my time was was doing reporting, general assignment reporting for that TV station. Huh. So I guess, you know, one day is better than none, and, and you and you were able to get experience at least. I did. Yeah, and so then did that, I'm, I'm sure that helped you with your next position. You know, like where did you move on to next? It did. I, I continued two years in Virginia as a meteorologist and reporter, and then I had the same job offer in Burlington, Vermont at WFFF VNY. It's a Fox and ABC affiliate in Burlington, Vermont. And I had the same thing, a meteorologist and reporter, which I did for about a year and a half. So the time in Virginia reporting certainly helped me because I included a lot of those segments and reports on my resume tape. I sure had weather first, but I also had some reporting since I was still applying for it. And I was glad that I had that because it only allowed two months to pass from graduation from college to my first job. So I think that helped looking back in hindsight to make myself... Uh, a little bit more valuable. And I heard that from other alumni too, to have multiple skill sets. So then tell us a little bit about how you ended up at Weather Nation. There was one more pit stop there. Uh, after four and a half years, four, four and a half years in Burlington, Vermont, I stopped by West Palm Beach, Florida. It was a CBS affiliate uh, in Southeast Florida. West Palm is North of Miami and Southeast of Orlando. So that was a two year stop. And that was really nice because of the weather and the beaches, but also <laughs> because of the tropical meteorology. I had, I had grown up in New England and we had experienced some tropical storms and uh, most notably, I remember Hurricane Bob in the early 90s, but not really outside of that many tropical situations. So living in West Palm Beach, Florida, I was constantly watching the tropics. You know, Florida sits out like a sore thumb from the Gulf and the Atlantic. And that really honed my uh, love of tropical meteorology. I can't get enough of that. So there was two years there. That was mainly meteorology by that point. I hadn't done much reporting. I would go out to do a tornado survey, not not do the survey, but follow along with the NWS meteorologists. And then in January of 2017, I moved to Denver 
to work at Weather Nation as a meteorologist, and that's still where I am today. Can you give a brief introduction to what Weather Nation is and does for someone that doesn't know? Let me think of how many words this is. Uh, five words or so. The, the <laughs> motto of Weather Nation is weather, and then there's a period. It's what we do. So that's the, the, that's the shortest summary we can do. But elaborating beyond just a handful of words, it's a 24-7 weather network that covers national weather, top stories, sometimes anything happening that's really drastically happening internationally, but primarily 24-7, 365 weather network, mainly streaming, especially with today's turnover to streaming services. So it's mainly streaming and covering any kind of top weather story, but also providing regional forecasts with closer views and detail on day-to-day weather and top weather stories going on in various parts of the country. How do people watch Weather Nation forecasts? Is there a proprietary platform, Netflix for weather, or you know something similar where folks can tune in to their region? Or does Weather Nation also license or distribute their content through other communication channels? A little bit through other communication channels. For instance, the main drivers I would think that are most popular, most common to people that they know about, Roku, uh, Amazon Fire, Apple TV, Samsung TV. You can also get it on your Xbox and PlayStation for any gamers. Then there's Pluto TV, another uh, service. There are so many. Sure. The Pluto TV is one of the newer and kind of a little bit more well-known free TV services. Dish Network as well. And there are a handful of television affiliates around the country. For instance, I was an affiliate in West Palm Beach, Florida. That was an affiliate TV station where, for instance, if you have multiple channels, I have a, a satellite in my um, in my living room. And it's uh, I should say they're like the TV rabbit ears, but nowadays it's a it's about the size of a computer screen or a piece of paper. It hangs on your wall, and that's your yeah your uh, antenna for free HD TV. It's great. I love it. And some channels have a dot one, dot two, dot three channel, and and that's what we are. You know, perhaps a dot two or dot three channel on a on a couple of stations around the country. So when you started out in two thousand eight, was this model of weather communication? being talked about. I know that smart TV technology was either very nascent or even non-existent or non-familiar to a lot of folks at that time. Now, it was it was way different in my opinion. It was I mean, the, I just to think of how many more people had a cable subscription. They had a standard um whether it be at least, you know, I'm, I mean, Comcast comes to mind, whatever it may have been back in the day. Uh, but, you know, so many people had a cable subscription and I would send out a, a you know, a standard resume tape or a DVD and, and just so much less streaming, you know. That, I mean, even before YouTube was, was so popular, now YouTube TV is there. So I would still send out my tape and now I just, you know, send, if I were to update anything resume-wise, it'd just be a a link on Vimeo or YouTube, and that that's about it, and send you there. But in terms of yeah, the communication, it was it has changed drastically. And Weather Nation, you know, even before I got there, which I I don't know much before I got there, but I know that they were seeing that happening. They jumped right on it, uh, especially you know Roku and and the streaming 
platforms that way. And it definitely helped because the seems to be the trend that continues. For our listeners who may be interested in in working at Weather Nation, what what is it like to be a lead meteorologist there? What what do you do? So I'll take you through the day. Um, we work ten hour shifts, and we work four days a week. So it's four tens, and then three days off. So the work life balance is awesome, to say the least, especially with that one extra day off. So getting in, it varies what time we have. Uh, as at least on an on-camera meteorologist, there are four main shifts. There's a 2 a.m., there's a 7 a.m., there's a 10 a.m., and there's a 11.30 a.m. Those are the start times to go then 10 hours after that. But primarily what you're doing when you're getting in is chatting with the, the prior meteorologists that are there, any big top stories, anything that's happened throughout the past half day or day regarding a tornado report or something substantial or new record or... Um, the way the models are trending on a nor'easter. So talking to them about what's going on and then also formulating what we call sequences. So those are what you would see if you watched our programming on Weather Nation. It would just be a, a show and randomly you just turn it on. We could be in the middle of one of these sequences and we usually have about five to eight sequences and those are top weather stories happening nationally. And then we can go into some greater detail of what's happening regionally. And that could be a fire update in the West. That could be a hurricane, uh, a clipper coming across the Great Lakes, a heat wave in the South, those kind of things. And then you get right into building mode. You, we build all our own graphics. Now, not from scratch because they're they're already there. So you're just making little tweaks here and there, pushing graphics into a new camera view to follow a weather system and adding a few more cities to show those. And then we go on air. Most of our meteorologists on air are on for about four or five hours of the shift, about half the shift. Uh, not constantly because there are commercial breaks, but about four or five hours are spent in studio delivering the weather uh, in a standard TV studio, cameras, lights, action. Um, and then there's responsibilities behind the scenes, such as updating the website with stories of those same sequences updating the social media, maybe searching for content, especially if it's on a busier weather day. And putting that all together, those 10 hours actually go by pretty quickly. So how big is Weather Nation in terms of employees? It's a small company. It's a nice family company too. So perhaps about 50 people okay. taking it. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's relatively small. And I love it because then you can bounce ideas off of some folks that might be, you know, running some things, whether it be, you know, the advertising or the owner of the company, you know, you see them walking around. It's not as though I had worked for Sinclair and Nextar Television, and you'd hardly see those people walking around your news station. At least you get a memo a month out that they're going to be showing up at your campus. <laughs> so it's really nice. It's a small, you know, tight-knit group and, and uh, real good people, too. So are the shifts um, the same all the time? Like, I, I'm... A 2 a.m. shift, that would be, that'd be tough. But, um, you know, I'm assuming that it's not rotating or anything. Your shift is your shift. Is that how it works? It is, yeah, primarily. Unlike the, you know, the National Weather Service offices still have some, some rotations where they'll, they'll, they'll switch every few weeks. We, we stay the same unless something drastic happens or unless severe weather coverage interrupts that. We've had hurricane seasons in the past where you're just working some wacky hours, and uh, perhaps some long stretches to cover an event. But outside of that, it's, it's pretty stable. So the work-life balance then 
doing four 10 hour shifts uh, ends up being pretty nice having that third weekend day. It's just essential for relaxing and then getting re-energized and then motivated to get back in the office the following week. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a bad um, a bad work week <laughs> no. compared to like reg- regular broadcast meteorologists where it's 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 a little tougher sometimes. So, what do you like the most about your job at Weather Nation? I like the fact that we can talk as much as we want about the weather. So there's no really, you know, our segments are seven minutes long. So outside of going over seven minutes, there aren't really many boundaries to it. We, I had worked in local news. I told you about my work history, which had taken me from 2008 to 2017, so about nine years or so, um, and, and local news. And that was nice and, and that was good, but you hear, you know, a mixture of news and weather and weather's just a small segment. And you kind of have to wait through some some news stories that might not be the most positive. So with weather, you know, it's just all weather. It's all weather stories. And surely there are some non-positive weather stories when it comes to disasters. But you get to explain things in, in terms of having more time to do it. You know, in local TV, I only had maybe three, three and a half minutes to discuss the weather. And there were a lot of things to get to, especially the seven-day forecast, making sure that was up for fair amount of time. But here we we get to you know explain why uh, it's so snowy in the Great Lakes or why that fire is spreading so fast. So I'm constantly learning. It's a, it's, a, it's a place that I get to learn and learn from other people too, because we have meteorologists that have joined us from various parts of the country, whether it be Connecticut, like me, uh, Michigan, uh, Louisiana, uh, California. So it's great to hear from those people about their knowledge of weather. So it's constantly like a a train of learning continuing, which I love. And you've sort of touched on the family, let's say weather geek environment of Weather Nation. I mean that in the most positive way versus a little bit more of the corporate culture at your Sinclair Broadcasting Station or some of those other television stations. And my understanding is that sometimes there's decisions about how to present the weather at a television station that are based on preferences of management, um, corporate priorities in terms of viewership or other success metrics. And at whether, you know, let's say it's talk about climate change and not being able to speak in the way you want about some of those topics or to get in depth with just educating the public about science in a fun, engaging way. And it sounds like those boundaries don't exist at Weather Nation. And in fact, there's a culture of encouraging all the meteorologists to find ways to engage viewers with the science. Yeah, you're right, Rex. And climate climate change is still pretty sensitive to some people and and gets opinions going. And sometimes it's ranks among those things that you don't ask people about, you know, their political affiliation or religious beliefs and then also the climate. But, you know, it, at the end of the day, it's still all one world. It's still all affecting us. So what we do to try not to stir too many feathers is, for instance, if uh, Noah puts out that October worldwide was among the fourth warmest on record, you know, we'll, we'll share that that information, blast it out on the web and, and just kind of take the any findings from Noah. Uh, if it's Climate Prediction Center or, or whatever agency it might be, and, and just share it as is uh, and not really start to, to hammer down on a certain side. 
So we we do that. That takes a little bit more tiptoeing around again because it still for for many people is is kind of a can be a heated thing. Sure, that's understandable. Are there other challenges you face working in your position? There are some challenges, and especially because we cover national weather, most of us haven't been to all of these places that we're we're talking about impacts from a certain weather event. For, you know, if I give an example. I grew up in New England. And I have yet to visit the beautiful Pacific Northwest. I'm, I'm mm. talking about it every day, especially during the rainy season of the winter months. But I've yet to to step foot in, in Oregon and Washington. And that's the hardest for a communication standpoint. It can be discussing impacts from a weather event without having ever been there. So that is one thing. And then the other is getting to detail Everybody wants to know in their city, their spot, what's going to happen. But since we cover perhaps a, a, a big blizzard or a nor'easter, and we, we sometimes have wide views of maps, we don't get into as much detail as we could get into in, in local news. So there are a couple of challenges in that regards. And then also, lastly, time, if it's a very busy weather day. And I always think back to the blizzards of, I believe they were 2019, they were either 2018 or 2019. We had a couple back-to-back blizzards, and they dumped a bunch of snow, but they also uh, ravaged parts of the plains with flooding because there was a lot of snow melt and rain on the warm side. So that was an example of having a big story and not being able to get to all the details. Or if there's a landfalling hurricane and something else big happening in the country, you know, usually one of those ends up not getting nearly as much time. So you had mentioned that, you know, working there, there's a good work-life balance and that you have like a specific shift, which is good. What about the days of the week? Now, do those rotate so that somebody isn't working a weekend every weekend? We try to split it up the week, the weekends the best we can. All of our on-air meteorologists end up working a weekend day. So for instance, I work Wednesday to Saturday and then there is a crew that works Sunday to Wednesday. So there's a bit of an overlap in the middle of the week on Wednesday, but it's it's the fairest that we've been able to decide where we just all suck it up for a day and work one weekend day, and then we have that three-day stretch off. And I should say the same applies to our producers because we have on-air meteorology talent, and we have about a dozen meteorologists when we're fully staffed. And there are producers that are meteorologists as well, and they're they're great gathering content and producing segments, and they're the ones that uh, we work with with the shows that we're about to do. So the, the, there's a nice opportunity, too, for people that don't want to necessarily be on air, and they have the same schedules, too. Yeah, I get, and I guess it's not so bad since you have the three days off that, you know, a one weekend day um, mm-hmm. isn't terrible. No, I find I find that um, you can get a little bit more done if you get into a rhythm. We'll say during a ten-hour shift, you're probably going to you know continue to do some good work and make some good progress. Whereas if eight hours hits and you have to go home, but then also that last weekend, you know the the last day of the the day off, I, I find myself coming coming in with a little bit more motivation, having rested a little bit more. So I you know I'm, other places do four-day work weeks too, and I'm hoping that they kind of catch along because. Uh, they are fantastic. It's only two more hours above, I think, what the general expectation is that most people do. So mm-hmm. it is it is interesting how that two extra hours can can lead to three days off and and like you said, maybe reaping more benefits in terms of rest and rejuvenation and 
excitement about the each new work week. Stephen, do you have a particularly exciting moment in your career or a moment that you are most proud of that you would like to share? That's a good question. We cover many tornado warnings on Weather Nation, so covering those is always very satisfying, especially when we're on and something happens right when it occurs in various parts of the country. Hurricane Irene in Vermont, I'm probably proudest of that. That was a very good uh, storm to work through, communicate the impacts. That was in Burlington, Vermont at the time. And my wife is also a meteorologist. She was on the podcast earlier with you off uh, an earlier podcast, Karen Jerriman. So we were working at the same place together and we worked through Hurricane Irene in Vermont, which was expected to be a very big deal in New York City and, and down to the South, which it was still a deal, but it was even a bigger impact in Vermont, New Hampshire for the flooding. That was in 2011. So that was the most proud you know, moment working, working through and covering that event because we ended up conducting some some surveys after of how people uh, let weather information soak in and how they absorb weather information. And that was interesting too, because there was still a decent amount of confusion of what weather alerts mean and what to do in terms of a, a severe weather event. Did you have any takeaways about what what to improve after you did that survey, Stephen? Yes, uh, totally. From a forecaster standpoint, it was to discuss impacts more because the forecast was spot on. There was four to eight inches of rain forecast, which verified, you know, maybe there was an amount up to nine inches or something, but pretty much the rain forecast verified. But we didn't really do a good job of of talking about what does that mean uh, at the end of the day? You know, what is a half a foot of rain going to do to local roads? And in the end, it ended up washing out so many roads and even some houses So we had to do better regarding that, but also a time for the viewers to explain what certain alerts mean and preparedness actions, because some of them can be confusing and then people just kind of want to know the bottom line, what they should do. I get confused too between the difference between a watch and a warning. I still get a little confused when I I see that. I, I automatically assume, okay, the warning must be the you know, the higher priority or the one that is gonna cause the the most issues, but and I thought somebody had told me that that wasn't the case. So tell me, what, what is the difference between a watch and a warning? Oh, I always, when I'm on there, I always like to communicate it. As an example of a watch means you should watch out for severe weather or impactful weather for the next several hours. And you don't have to do anything now, but you have to prepare to take action or prepare to do something if, if the case is case need be. But a warning is something's happening now or it's about to, it's urgent. And then you want to make sure that you have those already pre-planned ideas and then enact those. I always say with a watch, just get a mental picture of what to do in case that impactful weather event's coming to you. Know where your safe place is and uh, how long it takes to get there. And then also where you'll be during severe weather or impactful weather. Know where that safe place is at school or at work or at home. And I guess you need to let people know that um, it's always changing, correct? Because if I'm only looking at the weather, say three days out, and I see there's a watch, but then I don't look again, uh, that probably might have changed to a warning. So I guess it's a good idea to have people check regularly. It is, yeah. We, we say that it's about, about hurricanes, especially when a hurricane is perhaps five or seven days out. I usually say check in once or twice a day with us 
if it's you know ends up being three days out, check in more you know, a few times a day if you're near the forecast cone. But with today's social media, it also makes it more interesting because you can have a, an old post show up, maybe perhaps from three or four days ago somehow on Facebook or something, and all of a sudden it has some old weather information. So we, I try to put in, you know, if, especially if it's dated or specific to that time or um, pretty specific to the weather impacts, I try to put a, you know, a date and time to say, you know, uh, t- today is know, Monday, February 4th, and this is the latest expectation. That way, if it shows up later on, people know it's a bit dated. Exactly. Now, for for our student listeners who you know may be interested in working at Weather Nation, um, do you have any advice or tips for them as far as resumes go? Like, what would you look for in a resume if you were hiring? I try to keep my resume, or I look for resumes that are shortened to the point, you know, kind of easy on the eyes that lay out work experience, relative relative experience and then the education in a nice, clear fashion. I am always a fan of one-page documents. You can just hold it in one. You know, if you want to make it double-sided, that's fine too, to get more information on there. But something that's easy to digest, because no matter what industry you're in, it just seems like today that attention spans are lower, and there's so much information out there to have to comb through a long resume. If you have a lot of them, it can be daunting. You can put a picture on there. I think that always helps too, to see the person. It's always a nice little touch on the one page. And then keep the most relevant information. I uh, had to kind of shave off some of mine because I said, this doesn't apply anymore. I used to work at Applebee's. You know, that's some, <laughs> some friendliness. And perhaps I have some nice etiquette when it comes to strangers, but I don't need that anymore. So yeah, trimming off anything that doesn't really apply too well. Would you look for people who maybe have a combination of the science background and maybe some communication background? Would that be helpful um, for a position like yours? It would. It would be you know, having that would help, and not necessarily in meteorology. We have had some people that have been interested in uh, astronomy, or perhaps have gotten some kind of degree regarding that, or geology, or anything. Um, or, any other kind of earth sciences. But having that, I mean, we, we also have positions that are off air. So a producer um, or even some technical work such as technical directing or camera work. So those are options too. But for on air, that's going to require a meteorology degree or some kind of, you know, what Mississippi State offers in terms of something online where you can get a certificate or a smaller degree if you hadn't concentrated in it first, that'll do well too. And we're usually looking at least for a few years experience. That way you have the ability to talk to people well, to ad lib well. It takes a lot of ad libbing in this job because like I said, you're talking about various parts of the country you may not have even been to or whether you may not have experienced either. Some people worked with us from Florida, never seen snow. And then all of a sudden they've got to talk about winter storm warnings. <laughs> right. So having at least a few years under your belt is is going to help quite a bit. Are there any new or emerging skills that you're finding are becoming more desirable among broadcast meteorologists coming out of college? I know, for instance, in other sectors of meteorology, coding, language, uh, experience has become increasingly desirable outside of 
you know, grounding in, in, in the physics and the math and other more traditional areas of the science? I would say so. I would agree with you, Rex, about the coding. I think that one is one of those attributes that is an, a, another good thing to have. GIS work too. Uh, there are so many files that come out that we use from the Weather Prediction Center. We use it from the National Hurricane Center. We download these these KML files that we can use on air. And knowledge about how to make things look the best they can on maps is always a good one too. Writing, you know, I know we, we talk so much about science and everything, but having good writing skills is really good. We're responsible for writing web stories in our own social media. So having that creativity and being a good writer, I always like that as an attribute. Good proper grammar and a little bit of creativity too. Was there any class outside of your major in college that you found influenced you in some aspect of your career? Maybe it was an elective, something like a fiction writing class or something, or an economics class that helped you in a way you maybe wouldn't have initially suspected? That's a good question, Rex. I've got to think about that. Most of those non-course classes, I would say, were to be in the in the beginning, because by the time we called it the junior core, by the time we got into our third year and our junior year, it was a heavy meteorological load. And so was senior year, because we had a thesis that we had both semesters to to work on something unique. I'm trying to wrap my brain around anything else that I had took. Technically, there was one class that counted as a credit, I think. It was a community chorus. So I sang bass in the community chorus uh-huh. that would meet on Tuesday nights. You know, maybe that had my working my diaphragm a little bit more for broadcasting and to yeah. uh, project a little bit more. That's a great example. Oh, I bet. And I, I also wanted to ask, as far as ad-libbing goes, when did you feel you got the hang of it? What stage of your career were you in? I would say mid, mid-career. It wasn't in Virginia because I, because I didn't have many weather shows. I was doing it once a week and filling. By the time I got, it would be morning, morning show at, in Burlington, Vermont. So that was between 2011 to 2014. So three years after that maybe I was a late bloomer. I could get by for sure. But the, our morning show was four hours long and it's so many weather hits. So the more you do it, the better you get. That's that's the thing, I, I think. I'm sure you can do some other tests and skills, but the more you do it, the better. So by the time, you know, three years in and then working here, it, it's only gotten better. But like I said, we're doing about four or five hours of, of weather uh, per shift, not constantly. So it, it turns out to be about 20 weather hits per shift. So for seven minutes segment, you're sharing about half of it because you're with another meteorologist. So three and a half minutes, uh, 20 hits a day. It's about an hour of ad-libbing every shift. And you know, the more you do it, the better you get. Sure. I think it's interesting to look at expectations coming out of college versus midway through your career in terms of someone that's listening and is thinking, what might I not imagine being prepared for? right out of college. And I think ad-libbing is an interesting example. So thank you for sharing. Stephen, before we 
end the podcast, we always like to ask our guests one last off-topic question to look at the person behind the meteorologist. And the question we thought to ask you was, what is your favorite hobby? Well, you will see me going to and fro, Weather Nation or wherever I'm working, on a bicycle. So I try to bicycle as much as I can. That's my biggest hobby because I enjoy it on so many aspects. So I arrive, and the funny thing is I'll do it in the winter. So I'll arrive into work, you know, almost like dumb and dumber as they, you know, uh, (laughs) they arrive in Colorado, of course, and they're just frozen to one another. And, you know, it just look like a mess. I'll do it in the winter um, and I'll, I'll arrive in this massive bundle of brightly colored clo- colored clothing. So I love I love the bike because it gets me uh, it's just my little stress relief when I'm doing it. It uh, is good exercise commuting. So I try to commute as much as possible. Doing it at a mile high elevation in Denver is a um, bit of a challenge because of the amount of uh, a little less air up here. For sure. So and then the um, you know for the for the environment too it gets me out to enjoy nature a little bit more and then try my little part when I can to to try to save some some emissions by biking. So that's my favorite. How far? What's the distance? It's it's six miles each way, which takes about a half hour. So it's just the, the, the right sweet spot. It's not too far, not too close. So it's about six miles each way. So if I you know, were to do it throughout the course of the week, every day it would be 48 miles. So it's a decent, decent weekly. Yeah, thing. yeah, that's great exercise. I love cycling as well. How, what is it like in the snow, though? That must be pretty tough. Yeah, I guess, I, I, guess I, I do in the winter with an asterisk there. I have three, maybe two variables, uh, two scenarios that I don't like the bike, and I, I won't do it in ice. You know, in Colorado, sometimes these bikes have these big, fat tires. Yeah. And you see them going up and down. You see them going across fields, up and down mountains. Um, but I have these skinny little tires, and oh, I would wreck. I don't have any chains or anything, you know, nothing that's winter tires. So snow and ice, I, I don't do. And then if it's really extreme wind, it's kind of hard to do it. But yeah, otherwise, that would be tough. otherwise, you know, the, the cold, as long as you're covered up, it doesn't bother you too much. It's good to hear. And uh, how's the drag racing going nowadays? <laughs> it's funny. It's long past me. I have yet to to return to the racetrack in quite a while. I'm sure it'd bring back so many memories hearing it and and uh, seeing the cars. The funny thing is, there was a bit of a complete circle. I was working in Virginia. My dad sold the race car because he it was just too much on the on the weekends. And he sold it to a guy that also lived in Virginia. And we connected while I lived there. And I actually went down, it was down toward the south part of the state, perhaps south of Richmond, and uh, helped him helped him with the car. So that was back in 2009, 2010. So it was kind of like going back in the day, but that was about the last time I had been. Gosh, so, so it was meant to be, selling the car to that person. That's that's awesome. I know, I know. That was, that was a funny connection that... I got to see it one last time. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Stephen, and sharing your work experiences with us. You're welcome, and thank you for having me. Well, that's our show for today. Please join us next time, rain or shine. Clear Skies Ahead, conversations about careers in meteorology and beyond is a podcast by the American Meteorological Society. Our show is produced by Brandon Kroos and edited by Peter Trepke. 
Our theme music is composed and performed by Steve Savoy, and the show is hosted by Rex Horner and Kelly Savoy. You can learn more about the show online at www.ametsoc.org slash clear skies and can contact us at skypodcast at ametsoc.org if you have any feedback or if you would like to become a future guest. Music